So you have a 15-year-old daughter who is about to begin the process of researching schools and applying, et cetera. When you think about what you want for her in college, what do you hope for? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I mostly think and I mostly worry about what I want from the process because I don't want the whole thing to be polluted by the fact that her dad is out like yapping in public about this. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is a great day to be alive. As it is, wherever you are, no matter what you're doing, you're alive, and that's good because someday you won't be alive, and that'll be less good. So here on Crazy Money, we take the time to reflect and appreciate the value of all we have in our lives through the lens of my guests' money journeys and or expertise. And folks, if you have a kid that is in college, on his or her way to college, or will be there in 10 years or so, you owe it to yourself to listen to my conversation this week with Ron Lieber. You might recognize Ron's name because he is the Your Money columnist at the New York Times. And his new book, The Price You Pay for College, is an incredibly important resource for you to understand the complicated and opaque journey that is both the college admissions process and the process by which families receive funding, whether it be merit or financial aid. So I learned a ton reading this book, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we get to Ron, let's talk a little bit about the Crazy Money Listeners Group. Well, first of all, if you're new to Crazy Money, you heard what it's all about a few minutes ago, but do me a favor, please, and hit subscribe if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts and or follow if you're listening on Spotify or Stitcher. Other apps have different ways that you can follow, but opt in to have Crazy Money delivered to your app every Tuesday as we deliver new episodes because the guests really are pretty phenomenal. I want to say welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. That's right. There's this app called Facebook. Perhaps you've heard of it. And on that app is a group where people get together and give feedback to me about what we're doing on Crazy Money. And they maybe request some guests. They uh, sometimes say, hey, Paul, quit making your introduction so long. And you know what? What I say there is you can always fast forward. I won't be hurt. But yeah, so here are some folks who've joined the Crazy Money Listeners Group. Aaron Joy, so nice to hear from you again. Ilana Brackett, Robin Foster Porter, hello. David Summer, what's up, dude? Brian Brasher, a.k.a. The Pitch Hammer. Kelly Asnola, or Asnola. Hello, Kelly. Matt Dodge Hemi, Marty Lopez, and Realtor to the Stars, Holly Parker, whom you're all going to love hearing my interview with. With whom you're going to love hearing my interview. No, because you're not going to listen with her. You're going to love hearing the interview I did with Holly. It's going to come out next week. She is an old friend and enormously successful realtor in New York City. She sold over eight billion dollars worth of real estate in the last 24 years. She will share with us some insights, both to her success and the anxiety that she feels that both keeps her going and is her nemesis in her daily battle to bring her best self to work and to the planet. So I know you'll love hearing Holly's interview. So by all means, subscribe and or follow. All right, let's talk about Ron Lieber. As you'll hear early in the interview, two years ago, I met Ron when I interviewed him for episode number four of Crazy Money. So it was a real pleasure to have him back. Ron Lieber's new book, The Price You Pay for College, contains critical, in-depth information about one of the most important financial decisions your family will ever make. After 15 years of financial reporting, Ron reports that, quote, no consumer decision inspires more confusion and emotion than the question of what to pay for college. And that's understandable if you think about it, because 
the price of a four-year in-state school, the top ones, is now exceeding $100,000 over the course of that education. And for private schools, tuition alone can easily exceed $300,000. That's a lot of damn money. That's after taxes. So this is a giant investment. And a lot of families just, probably most families get bent around the axle around both the emotional and financial stress of, you know, you want to provide the best place for your kid at the same time. Is school A that costs twice as much worth the extra investment, the debt that a family has to go into to provide their kid with the logo on the sweatshirt that she's always dreamed of? It's a tricky, tricky thing. Ron explains that not only is college ludicrously expensive, but the admissions process and the process by which Families are awarded aid, both merit aid and financial aid, is purposefully opaque. So it's hard to know where your kid's going to get in, but also if you're going to have the ability to pay for it if he or she does. But he's done the reader a service, and I have read this book in its entirety so I can vouch for it, but he's done us the service of diving head into this incredibly complicated process. He spoke to college professors, admissions officers, financial aid officers, registrars, presidents, did I say college presidents? He spoke to a lot of them too, about what families need to know as they try to navigate these stormy seas, as they try to provide the best fit college for their kid at the fairest price and not destroy their financial future in the process. There's so many different ways to come at this, and I know you'll enjoy all the things that Ron has to share with you, and you will definitely learn something if you listen to this interview and if you buy the book, which I highly recommend, links to which are in the show notes. Here's more about Ron. Ron Lieber is a proud alumnus of Amherst College. Amherst College? Is it Amherst or Amherst? Anyway, and he's the Your Money columnist for the New York Times. Among his previous books is the bestseller, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money, which he discussed with me on episode number four of Crazy Money, links to which you can see in the show notes. By the way, if you haven't read The Opposite of Spoiled, you absolutely should. It is a fantastic book as is the new one here, ladies and gentlemen, is Ron Lieber. Ron Lieber, welcome back to Crazy Money. It is great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. So I've got to tell you, you're the fourth guest on Crazy Money, and this is episode 95. So I want to say thank you very much for being willing to take a chance on me before many other people had. So thanks. You know, I smelled fun on you and I was right. (laughs) Is it fun? (laughs) Well, thanks. I'm psyched to be back. And you've got another book that I want to talk about. But before we get into the content of it, I want to say that, you know, we met two years ago in a conference room at the New York Times. And we were talking about your previous book, The Opposite of Spoiled, which every parent in the world should read. It's a great way to teach your kids values through the lens of money. But as we were talking about that, you mentioned that you were working on this next book. And it was about college. And we had a few minutes to talk about it during that thing. But as we were having this conversation, I thought, well, this book is going to be out within nine months or so. But, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but between then and today, there's been this pandemic that's happened around the world. So how did the pandemic affect both the content and the production timeline of your new book? Gosh, I mean, where to even start? So I had already pushed the pause button on this thing because I happen to have a bedmate who is also in the book writing business. (laughs) And we both sold our books, I don't even know how many years ago it was now, at like precisely the same time. And hers needed to come out first. So I had already hit the pause button for like a year so she could get done and get out. 
So I finally finished this thing. It's early March 2020, right? So, you know, nine months ago, 10 months ago (laughs) now. And we're getting ready to fact check. And all of a sudden, the news starts to come in. And we're looking at each other. And we're looking at the news. And we're looking at each other. And then the first college closes down. And then the second one. And then the third. And we're like, there's no way we can put this book out in August without somehow addressing the fact that all of higher education seems to be shutting down. And this thing, this virus, right? Surely this will all be over by then, right? And <laughs> and I can fix up the book and tie up everything in a neat little bow, and the book will just come out in January 2021. So, of course, we get to August, and nothing at all is tied up in a neat bow, and I had to make sense of it. So I had to do two things. You know, I went back into a couple of chapters to try and reckon with what seemed to be some pretty severe short to medium term financial calamities that these schools were going through, both in terms of cost and lost revenue, then I also had to make sense of the fact that any person in the book might have died or changed (laughs) schools, right? Or no longer believed the things that they said because the world had changed. So I had to go back and essentially re-report the entire thing to make sure it was true. That's a lot of fun, right? When you're approaching the finish line on a big publishing project, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was just a blast. I mean, nobody had an ideal summer, but the summer of 2020 was completely lost for me. <laughs> but whatever, I'm lucky to do the work and I am lucky to be able to finally show it to the world. And I feel like I did a good enough job of reckoning with it. I mean, thankfully, the things that happened sort of confirmed a couple of big theses I had about how this world works and how people shop for this thing called college. And so, you know, I was able to make some actual sense of it. Let's get into the content here. And as I mentioned in the introduction, the name of the book is The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest decision your family will ever make. What is a person or family buying when they go to college? Well, this is the most important question of all to ask, and nobody, hardly anyone ever asks it. So I spent a long time trying to figure this out with people, and I came to the conclusion that there were three things, generally, that people are buying when they go to college. First of all, they are buying an education, right? You go to college to have your brain dissected, taken apart, and then reassembled from its component parts into a new and improved whole by expert practitioners, right? So you're going to college to have your mind blown. You're going to college to have your mind grown. You're going to college to get smarter. You're going to college for the education. That's number one. Number two, you're going to college to find your people, right? You want Friends, friends for life, people who will raise you over their heads when you're dancing the horror at your wedding. You want them carrying (laughs) your casket when you die and everywhere in between. You want them on LinkedIn. You want them throwing money at your startup. You want them reviewing your resume. You want all of that, right? And that's not all. You don't just want peers. You want mentors, right? You want the adults, clergy members, the professors, the deans, the financial aid officers, who are going to stand up for you and stand by you as you become a better version of yourself, right? So you're going to college to find your people. That's number two. And then number three, you're going to college for a credential, right? You're getting your ticket stamped. 
So maybe you are a working class individual and what you really want is to grab hold of the middle class and hang on for dear life, right? So you're going for that accounting degree, the nursing degree, the teaching certificate, the thing that will hopefully make you recession-proof and a stable member of the middle class. Or, and this gets more complicated, you're trying to find a degree that will mean something to somebody that you really want to impress someday in the future, right? So that may be a graduate school admissions officer. It might be a recruiter at McKinsey. It might be Facebook, it might be the people at Y Combinator who, you know, usher in each successive class of 20-somethings, you know, to start up companies, a small group of individuals, right? And there, you're sort of seeking your prestige shopping, right? And that can get a little complicated emotionally. So those are the three things. Well, let's talk about the emotions. Why is college such an emotionally charged decision for millions of U.S. families and families all over the globe? But we're speaking specifically here about U.S. families. So I guess I'd start with this. This is the most expensive thing that we ever buy for our kids. And our kids are usually the most important things in our life. Mm. So it's only natural that we are just going to completely lose it when it comes <laughs> time to deal with that intense stew, right? Our children and a big pile of money. And so, of course, a lot of feelings come with that, right? So what are those feelings? Well, the first feeling is just pure feeling. Fear, fear that we're going to do it wrong, fear that when we do do it wrong, that they are going to go tumbling down the social class ladder that we've spent, you know, decades trying to clamber up ourselves, you know, fear of squandered opportunity, fear of looking foolish, fear of them not being able to make it through all of this fear. We just want to get it right. Then there's guilt, guilt that we have not put them in a good enough position, guilt that we not send them to the right school guilt that we did not find the right suburb in the right school system, guilt that we don't have enough money, that we didn't earn enough, that we didn't save enough, that we didn't do it right. It's all our fault now that there are financial constraints. And then I think the last one is fear of snobbery and elitism. We're not the elitists. We don't care about the bumper sticker on the windshield or the Facebook reveal or the Instagram sweatshirt. No, no, no. What we're worried about is all those people who are going to come later who are snobs and elitists and might not open the door a crack for our kids at these prestigious fancy places where they might want to work one day. And so, you know, if we don't reach to impress the snobs and elitists, then maybe we're doing it wrong. And so that whole heady mix of emotions and feelings can cause us to make some really dumb decisions. So let's start putting some numbers around the board here. How much does a college education really cost these days? An undergraduate education can cost as much as $325,000 today. So that is about what you would pay at University of Chicago and a handful of other schools that have gone to and then topped the $75,000 a year mark all in, including tuition, room, and board, and all fees. Schools like that, that charge that much, it is often the case that 30, 40, upwards of 50% of people are paying full price. Now, at schools like those, they also will discount on the basis of financial need. Those of us who were you know, in our 40s and 50s, we kind of remember the old way of doing things, where if you did not have enough income or you didn't have enough assets, you would apply for financial aid and the school would sort of size you up and they would decide how needy you were financially. And then they would give you some money if they wanted you or if they had the money to give out. 
And that was how it worked. What has changed since then is that there is now a whole separate parallel system of financial aid that's known as merit aid. And that form of aid has nothing to do with financial aid. So there are all sorts of kids in the 1% who are getting 10, 20, $30,000 full rides at places like Tulane and USC just for being really good students that Tulane and USC want to steal away from Harvard and Duke. Right? So that whole part of it has gotten very complicated. Now, it is possible on the other end to pay nothing at all. Right? You could be a one percenter who gets that full scholarship, or you could be someone who's extremely low income. You could go to a community college with your Pell Grant, live at home, spend nothing, transfer to a state university that's relatively cheap, get a lot of need-based aid, and get out without very much student loan debt at all. So really much depends on what you're striving for and much depends on what you're shopping for. Does receiving merit aid make one meritorious? It depends on the institution, and you are right to ask, because this can turn into a real big head trip. Uh, A friend of mine who's a college counselor just sent me a note the other day from a parent who was trying to figure a bunch of this out. And it was amazing what this parent had done subconsciously, although it probably made the schools salivate. What she had done was list not what the final cost would be at each of these institutions where her son had gotten in. She was listing the discount offer as if one should rank these places by the amount of discount, by the amount of merit aid that they're offering. So there was no information on how inflated the original list price was. There was no information on what the bottom line was. She was just excited that her son, and by extension her, had been patted on the head and told that they were a meritorious family. And so the school that was offering the biggest discount off the most inflated price may have had a psychological edge, right? So, you know, anybody who's been involved with marketing knows what a coupon is. A coupon is marketing and a merit aid is a coupon. As I was reading about it, and I've been conversationally aware of this back from my own experience in 1987, when I went off to college, I got a 50% merit slash leadership scholarship to go to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Had I not received that, I would have gone to the University of Georgia because that's just where my parents were. Isn't merit aid just like price discrimination? Like they want the best students, but they have to charge the amount that that student is able and willing to pay. Yeah, so we should give you some credit. Decades ago, the way that this worked, more often than not, is that there was at least some actual merit involved, right? (laughs) It's so old-fashioned. Right? Because, you know, what Rhodes wanted to do back then was have a better name for itself out in the world. How would you have a better name for itself out in the world? you do better on the U.S. news list. How do you do better on the U.S. news list? You improve your inputs. What's the quickest way to improve your you know, average SAT score, average GPA? Buy students. Yeah, you go out and buy students like you who otherwise would have gone to UGA, to their state school, you know, unless they got some financial inducement. And that strategy worked really well for schools like Rhodes, schools like Tulane, schools like Northeastern, USC. But if you do that hard enough and you do it long enough, pretty soon everybody else is going to respond competitively. And then it's a goat rodeo. (laughs) It's an arms race for both tuition and for facilities. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But 
my kids are younger. They're nine and 11. So I haven't gone through the experience myself, but I've been conversational witnesses to what my friends have gone through. Is it true that if my kids go early decision, they won't get merit aid? This is a tricky one. The challenge with early decision, where in theory you are signing a binding commitment that you will go if you get in, is that they can offer you any old amount of money that they want to, and you feel compelled to do it. So, you know, if you're wondering why it's true that the majority of people who apply early decision or the majority of people who get in don't have much of any financial need, it's because money is no object, right? And if money is an object, you're taking a risk with merit aid. You're taking a risk with early decision. Think about it this way. If you're in the shoes of the dean of admission and you only have a certain number of discounts you can give away per year, are you going to give those discounts to the people over whom you believe you have a lot of leverage because they're signing a binding commitment? I mean, that's what I would do, right? I'd save my discounts for when you know the slugging gets intense in April when people show up with four or five offers. Now, I can't prove that that's how it works, and the schools don't like to admit that that's how it goes, but you have to sort of reason that they'll you know, apply the logic of the market in that circumstance. And so there you have it. You mentioned the admissions director, and something that comes up both in your book and in Paul Tuff's book, and Paul was a guest, oh, six, eight months ago here on the show, is the concept of yield management. Can you talk a little bit about what an admissions director's job is today versus what it may have been 20 or 30 years ago? Sure. The admissions director's job is to keep the lights on. Um, you have to. <laughs> I thought that was the president's job. The thing about college, right, is that the customers are the product. Just like Facebook. <laughs> right. I was about to say there aren't that many other businesses like it, but of course I'm talking to somebody who may know a little bit about one <laughs> of those other businesses, right? So where does that leave you? You need to achieve a certain net tuition revenue per student. How do you do that? Well, you do it with software. You do it with algorithms that you know PhD consultants have written for you that suggest, okay, well, if you get a certain number of applications from this kind of high school and this kind of zip code, you can probably get a small percentage of them to pay in full. But here's what history tells us about the behavior of people with these demographics in the past. And so here is the lowest possible discount you can offer them that will still get a significant percentage of them to say yes so that you can meet your numbers. And if you're worried that you won't meet your numbers, well, maybe you need to do a little more recruiting, you know, over in the finer, you know, suburbs of Atlanta or in the San Fernando Valley in California, because we know that our client over here has had this good experience yielding more students from there who are relatively high income. So that's how they play the game. Now, these admissions directors also work for faculty and faculty are not happy if the quality of students coming in the door goes down and they'd prefer that the quality go up. But how much leverage do faculty really have at the end of the day, right? Tenure is an awesome gig, but you can't just go swapping one tenured gig for another. It's not that easy to pull that off. And so faculty can bellyache, but they are not really the leading constituency. You talked about what the admissions team will know about an applicant before they even arrive. Is there a risk of being too eager in one's research and follow-up with a school you really want to attend? I think there is a small risk. Now, here's why. 
most admissions experts will tell you about something called demonstrated interest, which you need to look up or ask about at schools that you're interested in. And what that says is that you will have a higher chance of getting in if you demonstrate interest. Now, the quickest way to do that is to show up on campus for an interview, which has led some people to think the demonstrated interest is classist, right? Because if you can't afford to show up for an interview, then you know, how do you demonstrate your interest? Not the only part of the admissions process that is classist, but just one of them. But just for starters, right? Right, yeah. So, but my concern about it was the sort of inverse, right? If you demonstrate too much interest, is it possible the school will lowball you on the merit aid or on the need-based financial aid because they think they have you over a barrel. So we've got a couple pieces of evidence over the decades that show that this might be true. Several years ago, a whole bunch of schools that were working with a particular consultant, the ones that write these discounting algorithms, and the consultant had discovered that there was a direct connection between how people ranked their schools, listed their schools on the federal financial aid forum. <laughs> And what their first choice was and what they found out was that if you had listed the client school number one, you could offer that person a lower discount and they would still come, all things being equal. That's just crazy. Yeah. Eventually, this got out and the whole thing was shut down. But that was evidence that schools are looking to use demonstrated interest as a way to offer you less money. The Wall Street Journal also broke this wide open, albeit 15 or 20 years ago, in a front page story where Carnegie Mellon was caught doing a little bit of this. So we have some evidence that schools will try to do this if they can. And so what's the moral of the story? I would say be a little coy, right? I mean, demonstrate interest, open the email, sure, go and do the interview, but I don't know if I would be spending two hours on these websites, right? Because they're keeping score on that stuff. I don't know if I would send 100 emails to the admissions office. Maybe you want to play it, you know, ever so slightly hard to get. Right. So I don't want my kid writing haikus about Northwestern and sending cookies to the admissions director in Evanston. (laughs) Probably not. All right. We'll get into financial aid in one second, but what are the pros and cons of hiring an admissions counselor? Obviously, one con is the cost involved in doing so. Sure. This can be expensive, but the way I think about it is this. What do you know that you don't know? And what do you not know that you don't know? And the challenge with this system is that particularly on the financial aid side and particularly with merit aid, It is not easy to figure out what a school's strategy is or how it operates. And in any given year, the strategy might shift depending on what's going on competitively, right? So how best to position yourself and how best to pick the schools to visit and apply to if one of the things you're hoping for is $100,000 off the list price, even though you earn $200,000 a year and you're not going to qualify for any need-based aid. So most high school guidance counselors just don't have the time to sort out that use case. It's kind of a particular use case. So there are a handful of independent college counselors who specialize in this. Of course, their associations make them nearly impossible to find. But if any listeners are interested in finding them, I, for a variety of journalistic reasons, chose not to list them in the book. But I know at least two or three who are really good at this. And, you know, I'm happy to make referrals, not because I get any kickback or commission, but because I just want 
people to find good people who can help them make sense of this because it is too damn hard to figure out and it is not your fault. (laughs) Yeah. The extent of the nooks and crannies of the admissions process that you shine a light into is really quite extensive. There's so many details that you cover that, I mean, applying your kid to college could be a full-time job if you wanted to make it such. I think that's right. There's someone I profiled in the book, a family from the mid-Atlantic states where they were right in that, you know, sort of sweet spot or sour spot, I guess is a better description, where they earned just enough money that they weren't going to get any need-based aid, um, but not so much that they could go around writing $75,000 checks each year. And they had two more kids coming down the pike. And they decided they were going to play the let's reach for the full tuition scholarship game. So, you know, there are lists of the, you know, dozens of pretty selective schools out there that have very selective programs for full tuition and sometimes full tuition and room and board scholarships. And so they got their hands on this list and their daughter applied to over 30 schools and visited like 18 of them. And there were, you know, 42 essays to write and you know, the mom basically took it over as a 20 hour per week job, just helping the kid manage all of the craziness and schedule all the visits. And she got it. She got the full ride at Tulane. Uh, wow. So, you know, it was worth every dollar spent and every hour spent. But wow, did it take a lot of time? Sure. But that's 300,000 post-tax dollars. I mean, that's 500 to $600,000 in income that you just saved. It's big money, right? So is it worth taking the shot? Sure. Is it insane to have to spend 20 hours a week uh, for a year plus doing this? It's bonkers. Let's talk about financial aid. What's the point where a family might as well just write off, not even fill out the FAFSA form? Well, it gets a little tricky because home equity is often in play depending on where you're applying, generally if you're applying to a private college or university. Uh, It depends how many kids you have in school at college at the same time. And there are a couple other things that are in the mix, but you know, generally they're taking a very hard look at your income. And if you're only going to have one kid in school at a time, if your income is, you know, a fair bit over $200,000, you're probably not going to qualify for much need-based aid in general. But, you know, that can swing by tens and tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the circumstances. Now, again, this is dated information from the mid 80s, but my father, who didn't make tons of money, always grumbled that he did a good job of saving while the family down the street had a bass boat parked in their uh, driveway. And so he was going to be penalized in the financial aid game, whereas people who had been reckless with their money got aid. Were his attitudes well-founded? His attitudes were not well-founded, but they are totally understandable. <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, that out. <laughs> so he was no dummy. He was just operating in an impossible system where nobody really understands the rules. So here's the rules, all right? The rules are that the formula cares a ton about your income and not so much about your savings. You know, the schools only want, you know, roughly five and a half percent of what you saved in in a college savings account in any given year. So, yeah, if you've saved two hundred thousand dollars, then, you know, that's going to add up to being, you know, serious money over time. But it's not like they're making a grab for everything. So why do people come to the conclusion that the folks who don't save anything are getting a free ride or a full ride on their parsimony? Well, there are a couple of reasons that happens. First of all, we can't know where that bass boat came from, <laughs> right? 
we don't know whether there's some, you know, rich uncle in the background buying the bass boat. We don't know how much debt the family down the street is in. We don't know how much debt they're going into to pay for college. And we don't know whether they're telling the truth about the supposed scholarship they got or how large it is. People themselves in the moment do not understand their own financial aid award letters. And this is not their fault. So people may be ignorant about what is happening to them and also innocent. Then there are people who are not innocent and are mouthing off about you know, academic scholarships that may not actually be as big as they're making them out to be. And so there's a lot of stuff that's sort of swirling around, right? And then this goes through the telephone rumor mill you know, in your favorite local upper middle class suburb. And then you just have no idea what has actually happened to anybody. And you shouldn't believe anything that anybody tells you. So my neighbors are not a good source of reliable information on how the system works. I would be very wary of trusting your neighbors. You know, by all means, talk to your neighbors, but your neighbors are a market of one. And any given school, in any given year, for any given type of student may have different needs or similar needs than the other school that seems similar to you, but really isn't for a variety of reasons that you can't understand because you don't know what's going on behind the curtain. You know, it's possible to discern patterns by looking at the limited data that schools make available, but comparing yourself to the family down the street is just likely to be an exercise in frustration, particularly when it comes to financial aid and the various forms of discounts. Ron, tell me what cruel optimism is and the role it plays in the admissions process. Cruel optimism is a phrase that I learned that I believe was coined by University of Chicago English professor named Lauren Berlan. And cruel optimism is the quality or state of being where the thing that you desire the most actually becomes an obstacle to your own happiness, right? So the way it fits in this context and really fits perfectly is that you're sort of going along on your merry way, raising your kid, raising your kids, doubling your expenses or tripling them if you have a third, and you're doing all this concerted cultivation, you're spending money on travel teams and you know musical pursuits and terrific summer enrichment. And then you approach eighth or ninth grade, and all of a sudden you wake up to the fact that these State schools now cost over $100,000 in many instances, or $300,000 for more selective private ones. And you just don't have it. And you're not going to have it. And this thing that you've been sort of implicitly or maybe explicitly promising yourself and your kids that all options are going to be open, maybe the way they were for you back in the day, that's no longer true. And this optimism you had about opening every possible door for your kid is not actually going to be possible. And that feels like a form of not just self-cruelty, but cruelty to your child because you've made it seem like anything would be possible. And now you're discovering that it would in fact be imprudent to continue to keep that promise. So it's a form of depression essentially that sets in when you realize that you're not going to be able to do what you thought you'd be able to do or wouldn't be smart to try. That's got to be a very common thing unless people just don't realize they're in that situation until even later. So what does a person do when their kid is 14 years old and they realize they haven't put themselves in the optimal situation to get their kid through college? 
Well, the glancing aside that you made to the possibility that you might not even realize it until senior year is actually a real phenomenon. And every year, one of the reasons I wrote the book was that my phone just kept ringing as I aged into the cohort where the early breeders among my peer group were sending their kids (laughs) off, right? People were ending up in March or April having no idea what hit them and facing down bills that were just going to be impossible. And, you know, literally, you know, tears and rending of garments on the telephone People just, they just hadn't seen it coming. Really, really smart people. And so you have to sort of start paying attention in middle school before you even know what kind of high school student you may have and ask yourself and ask your spouse if you have one and definitely ask your ex, as difficult as it may be, because (laughs) that will get complicated. What do we think our ability to pay this bill might be? And what is our willingness? And are those two things different? And do we disagree? Because if so, we better damn well work it out and not be fighting about it in front of our kid. Because if there are two of us, we've got to have a sort of united front and a strategy about this. And if the world is not our oyster, it's sort of only fair that our kid knows that. That's such a hard reality to face. And it does seem like that might be one of the sources of this huge student loan problem that we have, and and not just student loan, but parental loan, not just unaccomplished people who aren't smart. You tell the story of former presidential candidate, former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, who disclosed his financial situation, which by the way, is a quaint notion for a politician, who disclosed that he had $340,000 in loans outstanding for just his two oldest kids, and he had two younger ones. That's a pretty existential financial situation to be in. Right. So the question that parents ask themselves, if they attempt to push it through this framework of cruel optimism, is what is the greater form of cruelty? Is the greater form of cruelty to stomp these dreams into submission and pay for a state school or only the private college that's willing to discount to close to state school prices? Or is the cruelty to put the kid and ourselves as parents into debt to chase what maybe ought to be an impossible dream, but is not? And why is it not? Because the federal government in the Parent PLUS Loans program is willing to lend up to the entire cost of attendance per Martin O'Malley, regardless of your ability to pay. There is no financial underwriting, just a very, very mild, like you can't have declared bankruptcy six weeks ago, you know, form of credit check. So you can levy yourself up to the hilt to chase this dream. So is that cruel or would the cruelty be to, you know, deny your kid's dream? And my friend Kate Zaloom, who wrote an academic book called Indebted, Mm -hmm. she's an economic anthropologist, right? And she did a study of people who borrow for college parents in particular. And she has this phrase that I love about how potential is priceless when it comes to parenting. And so if you want to know how we got to $1.7 trillion in debt, it's because potential is priceless. I remember caring so much about where I went to college and really thinking about how wearing the right sweatshirt and having the diploma with the right name on it would legitimize me. And my cousin, I remember my older cousin had the same experience. She really wanted to go to WNL and it just wasn't in the cards. And so she went to the honors program at Georgia. And it's like, I remember how intense I felt that. You said you couldn't get commission for referring 
admissions counselors. Here's how you monetize this, Ron. Here's my idea for you. Let's say my kid gets into her dream school and it costs three times the cost of the honors program at my state school. I give her your number and you break the bad news to her. <laughs> That's worth like a grand. Easy to avoid that yeah. conversation. So what you are suggesting is a reasonably close cousin, like a second cousin once removed to the question of whether you should bribe your kid to go to the cheaper school. And this happens. The teary phone calls and sort of renting of garments. I still remember the conversation with the family where this was like the year before it became clear that like all of the sudden Tulane was one of the hardest schools to get into in the country out of nowhere, basically. And, you know, the kid had gotten into the University of Michigan and the kid had gotten into the Tulane Honors Program. Michigan was out of state and Tulane was going to cost like $80,000 less over four years. And the parents were like, look, we have to level with you. We want you to do what you want, but you need to know what the financial reality is. And the reality is, is if you go to Ann Arbor, there will be no family vacations for the next five years. And, you know, we're not sure if you go abroad, if you'll be able to like stay in Europe for the summer. And I mean, look, these are high class problems, sure. right? But the kid was like, you're trying to drive me. <laughs> anyway, she went to Tulane and she shot the lights out. Tulane's your fallback school? I mean, come on, that's not terrible, right? I mean, Ann Arbor is awesome, but New Orleans is a pretty fun place to hang out. Well, right. But think about it. These are our teenagers. Absolutely. All we've ever wanted to do was cultivate their potential. That potential is priceless. They are crying. We are on the crux of it, right? It is so easy to just say yes to them. It is so easy. Which brings us back to a concept from your previous book, the land's end line, right? <laughs> Explain the land's end line and how it might relate to this conversation about college. Oh, I love that you're drawing these lines. All right. So I grew up in Chicago and the Land's End catalog back then was like more of a regional phenomenon. And, you know, the catalog would come, it would be all of this, you know, sort of basic sportswear and t-shirts and turtlenecks. And you would call and order stuff and you'd talk to these really nice ladies in Wisconsin. And I just <laughs> love Land's End and I, I love what it stands for. And so when it came time to start thinking about what our daughter should be allowed to buy or what we were going to buy for her, our older one, who's now 15... I was like, we're going to have a land's end rule here. And what it means is that in any given category of clothing or shoes or outerwear that land's end carries, we are going to be willing to pay the price for the thing at land's end or the identical price elsewhere. But if the kid wants something that's more expensive, then she's going to have to pay the difference between the land's end price and whatever it is that she wants out of her allowance. And that was how we were going to bring some financial discipline to the proceedings. And so the question then becomes, 10 years later, and it's time to apply for college, you've had the conversation with your spouse, if you have one, or your ex, if you have one, or two exes, right? Oh, um, about the ability to pay and the willingness to pay. And you come up with a number and you just say, look, this is what we're going to be willing to do. This is going to be what we're able to borrow and willing to borrow. And you're going to need to make up the difference. And that might mean merit aid, or it might mean student loans, or it might mean working you know, 15 hours a week during the school year. And you have a conversation about that. And then your kid knows where things stand. And you try as hard as you can to stick to it on April 26th and April 28th and April 30th when there are tears. Yeah. 
So you mentioned before the fact that the government will basically lend you as much money as you're willing to take on. Do you foresee a day when student debt is subject to bankruptcy laws or apportioned based on the course of study that a student wants to pursue? So those are two very different questions. And let me tackle the first one because I know a lot about the first one and not so much about the second So the first one is that the rules about whether you can discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy court have changed a fair bit over the decades, but mostly they have gotten much tighter. So now it is next to impossible to get rid of student loan debt in bankruptcy court unless you can prove that you have an undue hardship. I have read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of court decisions about undue hardship. It is a pretty hard thing to prove. I suspect that those rules will get easier. Joe Biden, the president-elect, had a role in making the rules harder. He is now ashamed of having done so and says that was a mistake. So sometime in the next two years, maybe we might see some changes there. I would expect to see some changes. Now, as far as the underwriting goes, there are already a few experiments out there with student loans where colleges, Purdue is perhaps the best known example doing something called income share agreements, which is a form of debt. And they will give you some money and you will have to give it back to them out of your paycheck when you graduate. So those agreements are in fact being underwritten in part based on what you're going to major in and the average salary and employability of the person who comes out. So will we see more of that? Maybe a little bit. I don't think we're going to see the federal government underwriting parent loans based on the intended major of the kid, though. All right. Any one of these topics could be an hour's conversation. And I love the whole college topic because it's so many issues wrapped up in one values, spending, work, inequality, financial prudence, et cetera. But we got to wrap it up here pretty soon. So a couple of questions. What has COVID taught us for better or worse about the way higher education works in the U.S.? Well, here was my biggest conclusion. I went into this and I had a draft on March 10th saying so (laughs) that people go to school for the education, they go to school for the kinship, and they go to school for the credential. And when everybody got shoved into these Zoom rooms, the education wasn't very good anymore. The kinship essentially disappeared because it's hard to connect with a mentor or hang out with your friends when everybody's in their childhood bedroom. And the only thing left was the credential, which, you know, arrived unceremoniously, (laughs) literally without a ceremony uh, in the mail, if it came at all, you know, weeks after the supposed graduation day. And when the fall came around, so many people wanted to go back. And so many people wanted their money back from March because they were not getting the things that they paid for, right? And so to the extent that anybody thinks that online education or some form of, you know, kind of hybrid online learning is going to replace the residential undergraduate education, the traditional form, the one that has now become a a rite of passage for the middle class and above, I think they've got another thing coming because we've just had uh, an experiment in forced deprivation of that rite of passage and people were really pissed off. Like they wanted to sue because they weren't (laughs) getting it, right? Right. But the value of that credential is so high, nobody's going to pull their kid out of Harvard to make that point, right? Well, this is the thing. The consumers of the product 
that institutions of higher education produce have not yet revolted themselves and said, this sucks. Our 22-year-olds suck. Uh, everything <laughs> sucks. Uh, and we're not going to hire any college graduates anymore. Right. So, you know, the point at which they do that, they're the consumers of this product. The point at which PhD programs say, you know what, we're just going to take kids right out of the army or high school because we don't want anyone with bachelor's degrees anymore. The point at which that happens, then we see a revolution. But what I think we'll see from here is more like an evolution with a handful of schools trying interesting experiments. I mean, can you think of an industry that has changed less in a generation than this one? Nope. There you go. So you have a 15-year-old daughter who is about to begin the process, if she has not already begun the process of researching schools and applying, et cetera. When you think about what you want for her in college, what do you hope for? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I mostly think and I mostly worry about what I want from the process because I don't want the whole thing to be polluted by the fact that her dad is out like yapping in public about this. <laughs> Way to go, dad. Yeah. And so you ruined my college application process. Right. I mean, she just started a new high school and we had this whole conversation about whether it was okay to send an advanced copy of the book to the college counselors. And <laughs> would that be a, a nice thing to do to let them know that, you know, yapping dad was going to be out in public talking about their line of work or would that be too forward or would it be embarrassing? And, you know, I mean, she is an extremely level-headed teenager. And so I don't really worry about her that much, but, you know, I don't want to get in her way you know, this process should be one that's kind of mind expanding. And I don't want my super strong opinions to screw things up. So I worry less about what happens to her in college in part because she's such a level-headed kid. But the other thing that was just so utterly and ultimately hopeful for me about all this is that, you know, every place I went and I went to dozens of schools and I focused mostly on places I'd never been to before in my life. I just felt optimism on these campuses. It is hard not to feel like anything is possible when you're hanging out with a bunch of college kids. And it is just so clear to me now that there are dozens and dozens of great schools in every category and that she is going to be so much better than fine almost no matter where she ends up. My last question was, did writing this book make you more or less optimistic? And you just answered it. You're good. I'm more optimistic than I was when I started for my own family, but that is because we are careful planners and because we are privileged and because we have been able to save. I had a very different experience as a high school student. You know, my family's finances were in complete turmoil and, you know, we had to figure out what the financial aid system was and then beat it. And that may be why I grew up to be a personal finance writer. I don't know. But that worry is not going to be a factor, I hope, in our family. But I am worried for families who have a little bit less and who are going to be tempted to make expensive choices and choices that involve debt because of the intense stew of feelings that are inevitably part of this process. So, you know, if I accomplish anything at all with the price you pay for college, I hope that people will end the book being more emotionally intelligent about all this than when they started. Well, we will leave it there. Ron, is there a place where our listeners can find out more about you online? 
Yeah, I'm easy to find. RonLieber.com. You hit the email button and there I am. And I try to respond to everybody, although it'll probably be a little bit hard in February. Uh, (laughs) I'm on Twitter at RonLieber, Instagram at RonLieber, Facebook.com slash RonLieberAuthor. Lieber is L-I-E-B-E-R. The link is in the show notes. Ron, thanks again for joining us. Great to talk to you again. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Okay, folks, now that the interview is over, we're in a part of the show called the outro. And in the outro, I do a few things. I thank the guest. I offer three takeaway pieces of observation that I found relevant from the conversation, relevant and compelling from the conversation. I then ask you to rate and review the show. And then I, what do I do? I remind you who's going to be on next week, encourage you to tune in and subscribe. And then I tell Mike Carano to make me sound smart. Let's start at the top. Ron Lieber, thank you so much for joining again. What a treat that uh, you were number four. Thanks for taking a flyer on me back for episode number four. And thanks for coming back again. Let's segue right from there into the takeaways. Number one is, Ron, I truly mean it when I say that I believe you've done a service here to the reader because the college admissions game is complicated, intimidating, and it's a battle that families have to prepare themselves for on a whole number of fronts. See how I extended the battle metaphor? Financial, emotional, logistical, because to do it right takes a hell of a lot of time. You got to start early and really try to define success as early as you can in the process. None of these things is easy to do. It's not a process you're going to look forward to if you're going to do it right. And this book that Ron's created is a tremendously useful guidebook that when my kids, you know, five, six, seven years down the road start going through this process, I will be revisiting this book in whatever updated form it takes at that time. Secondly, you know, we talked a lot about how much value people ascribe to their kids' college dreams. And I just, I want to echo some things that Ron either said specifically in this interview or in the book, and that you're not doing your kids a favor by impoverishing yourselves to send them to a fancy university, especially if that fancy private school isn't really something that is going to move the needle on their professional career. So do everything you can, folks, to make the right financial decision, not just for your child. Don't load them down with debt, but don't put yourselves hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt as you start to approach retirement age. Your kids are going to have to pay for your ass at some point, one way or the other, so you might as well make the smart financial decision today. My third takeaway is that it is my hope that someday in the very near future, we will start to see some very real innovation in higher education. And when I say innovation, I just don't mean the ways in which school is delivered as a product. I mean, reframing the price of college within a context of the value that it provides, that it becomes socially acceptable and socially desirable not to necessarily send your kid to a four-year institution, but to a two- or three-year institution where they receive skills that are very applicable to the marketplace. We make the assumption that everybody will benefit equally from a college education or that the skills that are delivered in those very expensive experiences necessarily create long-term market value for your kid, and it just isn't true. So I would like to see those things come a little bit more into alignment 
as we move forward as a society. All right, those are my big takeaways. Here's the part where I say, you know what, folks, it helps me a lot if you rate this show on your podcast app and write a review saying what you like about it, what you get out of it. It would also help me a whole bunch if you shared this with a friend, because you know what? People that are interested in reflecting on deep, important issues don't raise their hands out there in social media. So I rely on you to share the good news of crazy money with people that you know and trust. So do that for me. Lastly, be sure to come back next week when my guest Holly Parker, New York City realtor, shares the insights of what it takes to sell $8 billion worth of real estate, including apartments that go for over 50 freaking million dollars, but also how she deals with the other side of the coin of her personality. The thing that drives her is also the thing that sometimes makes it difficult to perform at peak level. And Holly very kindly makes herself vulnerable in this conversation that I know you will find interesting. That is it. Thanks again for staying all the way to the end, folks. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.